Welcome back to the Peaked Too Early podcast. It's season two, episode 19. It is a great time to be a Newcastle supporter. And despite his despondency, it's a great time to be a West Ham supporter, which can only mean that this podcast will also be great. I am Blake wow. Munchell. I'm joined by the ever pessimistic Oscar Saywell. Oscar, oh. how are you? Wow. Yeah, struggling. Struggling. I'm trying to find the 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 positives right now um it is a bit of a pessimistic time i think but always fantastic to chat football and talk with you um and i've been enjoying the nice weather today so how are you blake good i only say despondent because you know i think you're so through and through uh Mm. west ham to the core that in the greatest time to be alive in the last 21 years uh, yeah. for a West Ham supporter. Uh, you, you still managed to uh, think it's all going to crumble away. Um, you know, I think that till the day I die, uh, even if we win multiple titles, I will have that pessimism as a West Ham fan. And to be honest with you, um, I, I, I'm glad I have that because it, you know, it builds character. It teaches you things in life, Blake, as you well know, as a Newcastle supporter, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Keeps you humble. There you go. Yeah. It also, it makes life easier. It's like, it does. You know, yeah. The small pleasures. Are... Yep. Yeah. And then the wins are very sweet. No, seriously though. I mean, like I, I wouldn't like to be, uh, I mean, we can, no, we could get into this because I wouldn't like to be a Man U fan. I wouldn't like to be a Man City fan. And Blake, in five years' time, Newcastle is going to be a club that's looking a lot like those two clubs I just mentioned. So I'm I'm really interested to see your evolution as a football fan, as a Newcastle fan over the next five years, ten years. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Um, I was actually thinking about that being a talking point on the podcast. Um, mm. um, and we might as well hop straight into it. Um, yeah. One of my fears of the takeover has been because one of my favorite parts about being a Newcastle supporter is the little things. I like the really small stories yeah. and the cool personalities. And, um, you know, I like getting thick in the weeds of Newcastle news. Yeah. Um, and that's the type of fan I like to be. Um, and so you know, just the emotion I get when I watch, you know, the celebrations for goals and wins and mm. um, like Joe Linton's running the length of the pitch to celebrate with the traveling Newcastle supporters yeah. this past weekend. Um, like if we do go on to be this phenomenal team that our owners have the ambitions to do, yeah. uh, if it got to one of the things where like, you know, when Chelsea square goal and they just, you know, pat each other on the back and walk back to the halfway line. Um, I do think it would um, diminish my support for the club. That's, Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm very curious about that because I'm thinking about these, these mega teams across the world. How many of them are like majority supported by, non-legacy fans if you want to call them that slash um plastic fans right fans that i mean and that can be a harsh term because i understand that football is for everyone and you can support teams however you want but there are fans out there who who are more connected to the branding um than the the ins and out of the club or, or even sort of like the community of the club and i wonder if newcastle will or can ever get to that point obviously we know that newcastle is such a historic and deep seated or rather has deep roots in the community and i i wonder if and then or maybe when those those ties those roots can be severed um and i wonder if we'll see some sort of breakaway community club that will start in the lower echelons of the of the football pyramid that become is sort of closer to that uh newcastle culture city culture environment um yeah i don't know it's very hard to visualize and i wonder if there is a team out there quite like newcastle that has been taken over by uh you know 
a conglomerate that has so much money. Um, because Man U is a historic club, but it was a slow burn to the top um, in the modern age. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess we just have to wait. Um, mm-hmm. There's really no, um, you know, no telling what will happen. Um, yeah. But I will enjoy what is currently going on. Um, yeah. As it oh, is going on. And speaking of waiting, uh, Brentford are still waiting for a good result because they lost 2-0 to Newcastle on the weekend. And Blake, tell me about it. Uh, well, one, the 2-0 scoreline is uh, pretty much solely down to David Raya, who yeah. was phenomenal. I think he made Alan Shearer's team of the week, um, yeah. despite you know conceding two goals. Um, he was immense. He denied Chris Wood um, probably a hat trick. Uh, <laughs> and, you really? Know, wow. So, yeah, three clear shot uh, goals from him um, ended up with zero. Um, which we can talk about Chris Wood briefly in a second. Yeah, I'd um, like to. But this match was, you know, complete domination. Um, helped, but not entirely by uh, Josh De Silva with a pretty reckless challenge um, that Matt Target is lucky his ankle is not in two pieces. Um, mm. It, um, you know, that was early, and, uh, you know, Mike Dean classically gave a foul against against Matt Target there, which was, you know, right. classic. Um, but uh, they would go on to completely smash Brentford in the first half. Um, Joe Linton, he loves scoring against Brentford. Uh, and Joe Willick um, with an incredible goal and Fab Share with the incredible assist. Um, one of my favorite goals of the season so far. Um, the... Lots of interesting things. Um, one, after Josh De Silva was sent off, Brentford did not change their formation, which was interesting. Um, you feel like a seriously threatened with relegation side, you know, would mm. suck it up and do something. Um, but they didn't really do anything, as far as I can tell. Um, and as a result, got absolutely obliterated down Josh De Silva's side. Um, the other big talking point is the return of Christian Eriksen, um, who uh, was, you know, essentially, he wasn't invisible um, in that he didn't do anything, but as soon as he came on, uh, Eddie Howe changed the formation, sent Joe Linton out wide, brought on Bruno Guimaraes, and Bruno Guimaraes man-marked Christian Eriksen out of the match completely. Mm. Um, so um, I think in a battle of the managers, uh, Eddie Howe certainly came on top. Um, also, Thomas Frank also with some weird comments post-match um, about it not being a red card, um, which... You know, Interesting. I just don't understand. <laughs> um, Chris Wood, it, is this transfer by Burnley now looking like a, a bit of a masterstroke? I, I know Burnley dropped points on the weekend, um, but you know they they've got rid of a striker in Chris Wood who's been excellent for them over the past few years, hadn't scored much for them this season, and and got twenty mil out of him hasn't scored for Newcastle, and they've got Wout Weghorst through the door. Do you think Chris Wood is in danger of being replaced in the summer already? I think it's interesting because um, I think it's the classic type of signing where someone who doesn't support the team doesn't see what the player brings to the side. Mm. Um, Which, yes, you know, his non-goal scoring would be an issue if his play didn't bring about goal scoring from every single one of the front six positions. Sure. Um, he, I'm sure, you know, someone is tracking hockey assists out there. Um, yeah. He would have quite a few. Okay. Um, his hold up play um, and his passing. And he also plays deep quite a bit. 
where he comes very deep, uh, holds up the ball in our own half, and releases the wingers on the counterattack, and we scored quite a few goals that way. Um, He also, we have not lost with him up top. Um, So Okay, well. uh, You know, I think as long as we're winning, it's not an issue. If it were one of these things where we weren't picking up buttloads of points, like I think uh, 14 of the last 18 available. um, Yeah, it's it's a a fantastic run. Pretty ridiculous. Um, Um, It it would be talked about much more of an issue if we weren't picking up a ton of points. One more question for you. Uh, Ryan Fraser, I thought he was excellent against Brentford. I think he has had a very good month. Um, what, what's his status in the team and how are the fans feeling about him after a, a very poor start, very toxic start even? Um, well, he certainly endeared himself to the fans in the last month. Um, I know you're not... Uh, like, obviously, you would not be listening to post-match interviews with Newcastle players like I would. But um, pretty much every single post-match interview, he has all but said Steve Bruce is a fucking bastard. Um, (laughs) Yeah, he's like not holding back. Well, he is holding back. He's like the typical uh, media training, you know, like uh, with no ill respect to the former manager. It's just that da-da-da-da-da-da. uh, yeah, he basically chalks every like his entire success up to Eddie Howe, and he talked about how he was like, "Oh yeah, the media, you know, with the way things ended at Bournemouth, um, the media kind of just you know ran along with the story that we hated each other um, when that really wasn't the deal. Um, you know, we were still close friends, um, yeah. and he understood my decision. Um, and I I do think that trust is very." Sure. Uh, yeah, very viewable on the pitch. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he for this season. I think it's one of these things where Ryan Fraser will play every match from here to the end of the season. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. He's our best, um, our best pressing player, um, other than maybe Chris Wood and um, or and Joe Linton, I guess. Um, and we don't really have another winger other than. Um, Alan, so um, you know he kind of has a quite easy spot, but I think his spot in the summer is the most glaring. Yeah, for grabs. Sure. Um, but I do think he'll stick around for a few years and be, you know, a very important squad player. Um, yeah. And also, very funny is uh, he has a really good friendship with Dan Byrne, which is oh, really? the most comical. It's like. Uh, you and a meet um being becoming best <laughs> friends um yeah true so um, uh, yeah he's a good he's certainly like in the last month the opinion of every newcastle fan has flipped on him including myself so sure yeah but isn't that all right how it's been newcastle, with every yep has it, it has been, been hasn't it yep. every newcastle player and listen, I think I think Eddie Howe is doing an excellent job. I understand that he's been backed um, to the hilt. You spent a ton of money, but um, you know there were lots of criticisms of him coming in, and I, I think he's dealt with the scrutiny very well, and and yeah, he's just doing a really solid job. Um, and trust, I think that is his big thing, isn't it? Um, and and when it's working for him, it it goes well onwards and upwards for the tune. Um, I want to draw your attention to Manchester City, who, um, who I guess the word is eked out a win against uh, Everton on the weekend, 1-0. Um, this match was boring other than the handball controversy, uh, of which the referee Paul Tierney and I believe also even the FA has apologised to Everton over. Um, thoughts on this handball, Blake? Um, I'll start with uh, one, not just those two, but also like the president of the referees union or whatever has yes. also apologized. It's just like everyone she... who's possibly involved has yeah. apologized. 
Um, so yeah, no. So let me let me describe it really quickly, unless yep. you want to. Um, yeah, it. it was Rodri uh, who scampering back to basically re- recover a ball, a loose ball in his penalty box, um, and the ball was bouncing. And um, he, I guess, you know, he wanted to control it with his chest or something like that. But the ball bounced to the right and his outstretched arm uh, moved forward to basically cushion the ball um, so he could sweep out of play. Immediately, the Everton fans were, sorry, Everton fans, yes. And also the Everton players were sort of like, ref, that is a blatant handball, etc., etc. Went to VAR. And basically, no penalty was given. Um, obviously, it's hard to describe moments in football on a podcast. Go and look it up. Um, and Blake, your feelings about it? Outside of my obvious bias, because I hate Everton um, yeah. with an absolute passion. I'm. Th- there's a couple of points, I think. Um, that need to be talked, I guess not need to be talked about, but we have a footballing podcast, so we're going to talk about them. Um, First is the position that the ball hits Rodri on the arm. And this is what I thought was reviewed by VAR and was the reason that it wasn't given. But I, I don't think that's... You know, I think they just straight up missed it, um, is the Mm. conclusion. I thought that what they were saying was they couldn't conclude if the ball hit him on the arm above the shirt sleeve, Mm. on the where the shirt sleeve meets the arm, or below the shirt sleeve. And because it wasn't conclusive, they couldn't overturn the call on the pitch. Um, Because it's not a quote, clear and obvious mistake. So that's what I thought was their rationale. Uh, You know, they ended up not even trying to defend it. Um, But this is where one of those things, um, you know, like American football, the referees have to announce their decision to the crowd, um, which has its own downfalls, but also, you know, Better communication between parties is always a better thing, in my opinion. Um, so if you know the referee at the point said, "No, it was his shirt sleeve," um, or like I don't have clear evidence that it hit his actual arm instead of the mm-hmm. shirt sleeve, um, yeah, you know, I think it would just the anger would be subsided a little bit. Um, Two. Uh, is the lack of an Everton player in the immediate area. Um, Not that that should not give a penalty, but for the spirit of what a penalty should be, like penalties are meant for infractions that deny the attacking team the opportunity to score a goal. And, you know, there's no Everton player within how many yards? Um, So... In the spirit of what a penalty is supposed to represent, it shouldn't be a penalty, but that's not yeah. what the rule is. Yeah, that's not what the rule is. That's a crucial bit, I think. Um, well, that is a good line of argument, that last bit. I certainly agree. Um, I do think this is a scandalous decision. I think it's the way that Rodri um, puts his arm out, so up and to the side. Um, yeah, it is I very... It's not shirt sleeve. Or it's like it smacks him in the arm. Um, and it's the fact that it's an attempt at controlling the ball as well. But yeah, I hadn't considered that line of argument that, uh, you know, what's the spirit of a penalty? What's a penalty meant to be for an infraction on an attacking player? Um, that is a very good argument. Um, so yeah, uh, I do think it's scandalous though, especially but he's such a shithouser. He literally tried to pretend that it didn't hit his arm. Like, mate, it fully fully hit your arm (laughs) so yeah well one of my colleagues one of my colleagues actually uh the other day was like the he was like oh the the league is rigged like he was like this is proof that referees are like bought or something and i was like that is a hot take right there um 
but yeah i think i think you know if stuff like this happens people are gonna there are definitely people in the world that uh that think that things are rigged yeah um yeah that's one of those things where you know one english referees are some of the most incompetent oh, yeah, they are referees yeah. in europe um so you know could referees organize this gigantic scandal um no you know probably not um and two you know we see this every single arsenal fans are convinced that manchester united have every referee in their pocket um you know now people think that manchester city have uh the referees in their pocket it's just you know anytime one of these super scandalous decisions goes against a big side you're gonna have these talking points of oh is the uh league rigged um but you know referees fuck up these calls against every club so yeah um i say penalty but um you know i watch football for the entertainment and uh i would be lying if i said i wasn't thoroughly entertained by the whole saga so yeah for sure um so that is um, Man City, Everton, and Brentford, Newcastle. I would like to raise to you um, mm. a very uh, short conversation about Manchester United and Watford, um, in which Watford, sure. uh, Manchester United took 22 shots, um, only three on target, Drew 0-0. Zero, zero. Um, I think Ben Foster was given man of the match, um, which, you know, he was having a pretty torrid season. Um, and so, of course, you know, man of the match against Man U. Uh, it's the way football is. Um, but the what I want to talk to you about is Ralph Ranick's comments yeah. after the match, in which he said... Our job as coaches is to help the team create chances. If we only had two or three opportunities in the game, we could ask ourselves, what can we do to create even more? But I think the number of clear chances we had today has to be enough to win a game like this. Yeah. Um, Not sure how you interpreted this comment, but I read it as, you know, he's diverting the blame. to his players um mm, oh okay which yeah in a way in a way his statement is very obvious and is like a yeah. very cliche answer but there is a way to read this quote where he's saying you know i did my job we created 22 chances yeah. if the players don't convert them yeah you know, that's the player's fault look i just want to know it, your opinion it, i think in a way i agree and i but I, I'm just going to go back to what I've been saying and what everyone's been saying about Manchester United for years is that there's there's something fundamentally broken about it. Every single season, something new crops up. Under the, under the Solskjaer regime, the culture was fantastic, but the coach was questioned and and it wasn't consistent enough. Under this current manager, clearly, I don't think the players particularly like Ranić. And I'm pretty sure Ranik doesn't particularly like the players. And there is this, they're in this weird limbo where they're not going to win any titles, any trophies. Um, and they're batting for fourth spot. And look, they're, they're unbeaten in quite a while. And the results have been okay. But what, what are they missing? They have, what are they missing? They're missing a good culture. They're missing... It's just... It's, I, I don't want to ramble. So what I will say is that this club is badly run from top to bottom. There is no consistency in hiring practices. There is no consistency, consistency in footballing culture. There is no consistency in style of play. Um, and it's, it's a broken club. Like, how do you solve this? I, I don't know. You can't pump money into a team and expect it to transform into a winning side uh it takes a fundamental shift in the entire structure of the club 
And that's something that people have been saying for, well, literally a decade since Ferguson has left. And I don't see it happening anytime soon. And so, yeah, I've run out of things to say on Manchester United. Um, as, for, as for that Ranyak comment, I guess I agree. 70% possession, 22 shots. It's one of those days. Um, and yet, you know, it feels like, man, you have one of those days. Three times out of four, uh, you know, per month of matches. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah, I agree. Um, well worded. Um, and a lot of my thoughts were echoed mm. in your speech. Um, I, it just feels like deja vu over and over again. With yeah, it, it is, isn't it? Where, yeah. yeah, they're on the longest unbeaten streak in the Premier League. Mm. Uh, and it still feels like they're in some sort of crisis, um, which I guess is yeah. 90% down to the you know torrid atmosphere in the locker yeah. room um yeah. and in the upper management um but yeah it just it feels like we're always talking about this menu where they they're always in the top five except for that one season mm-hmm. um and but there's always a crisis and it's always the end of the world always. and then at the end of the season they like they finish third and they get champions league and you're like why yeah why and 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 but, listen like the horrifying revelations of a few weeks ago you can't pretend like that won't have an impact on the squad um football teams are tight knit they spend a lot of time with each other when something like that happens with greenwood um not that the attention should be on the necessarily on the feelings of you know the the men that he works with but um that is a incredibly serious situation that's that's happened there and that's um demoralizing and destabilizing um yeah chugging along to a a, a fourth to sixth place finish i think they'll be lucky to get fourth um and before moving on i just want to touch on marcus rashford i'm worried for marcus rashford in a, in a footballing sense i think almost what when was it maybe september um or october maybe even before that uh, i remember saying something about how i thought marcus rashford might be struggling a bit you know him, himself mentally um is is he connected to football like he used to be um what is how is he feeling about manchester united how is he feeling about his role at the club um his confidence seems shot. He has had a really lackluster season and and it's a real concern. Like he's fallen out of the limelight. Um and I think people are forgetting that Marcus Rashford is this like 23, 24 year old would be superstar. Um and for England as well, one of the most precocious talents we've had in the country in years. Um and I, I'm concerned for him. I, I wonder what his uh, long-term future looks like. I, I can't see him at any other club. And yet, Ranić's not playing him. And, you know, he's not one to kick up a fuss. But I don't see any sort of energy from him when he comes on the pitch to try and work his way back into the team. I don't know what's going on with Marcus Rashford. And I really hope he salvages it. Um, what, do you have any thoughts on that um, by any chance? Um, not particularly. Um, mm. I mean, he's in a bad run of form. Right. So do you agree with me or am I just being crazy? Am I being over top here with my concern? I, I think it's a matter of expectations for superstars mm. versus other players. Um, you know, I think... You know, in the last, what, 15 matches, he has three goals and two assists. Um, which, for a player who isn't a superstar and a player who isn't at Man U, um, is just a poor run of form. Um, mm. And even, you know, shoulder slumping and, um, you know, kicking the grass as he 
walks off um, head ha- head hung. Yeah. Um, they're just signs of players in a not great run. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you're in the limelight, these things compound. Um, yeah. So yes, there is a risk because players who are at top clubs, your window is much shorter. You have to impress the entire time you're there. Um, yeah. And even though Man U's not a top top club, um, they have that, you know, faux mentality. Um, so there is the risk, um, but I do think I would give it more time before I would say I was concerned. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where it, it only takes, you know, one match or two matches and he comes right. running back. Um, but yeah, also, right. you know, leave England, Marcus Rashford. You know, yeah, oh, absolutely. If you're, you know, falling out of love because there's a bad atmosphere in your locker room yeah, leave, and you leave. live in Manchester and, you know, you get all sorts of abuse online and, you know, from, you know, every angle, um, you know, like, yeah. why not just, you know, why not go live in Spain or, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's go my Germany. opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. But, okay, I all I care about now, this sounds harsh, is I just want to touch on West Ham's win and then I want to move on to Leeds being stomped on and Bielsa's uh, sacking. Um, anything yep. else you okay. want to talk about before that? Nope. That's, right. that's what I had highlighted. Uh, West Ham. Um, great win. Really, really great win. Um, you know, we had talked in the previous pod about our um, inconsistency lately. I thought that this um, was a really resilient performance and a performance that, you know, not a scintillating one, but got back to our sort of previous form of late 2021 in in its assurance um i didn't see any evidence of of panic or of players not really understanding what their end goal was which i had seen um both those factors sort of creeping back into our place slightly um over the past couple of months um thomas socek got the only goal in the second half. Um, it really came out of nowhere. Um, bit of a scrappy cross that Antonio latched onto, poked it towards Socek, who subsequently poked it um, past Shah into the back of the net. Um, yeah, great victory against a fantastic wall side. We had highlighted that last week. Um, now let's transition away from the match day games and into some other matters. Leeds. Um, Obviously, sacking Marcelo Bielsa um, on the weekend, which um, I I'm really sad about um, because you know Marcelo Bielsa has become a, a a cult hero and an icon of English football. Um, it's not often that a man is at the helm of a club who are quite literally being torn apart every single weekend for the past month and a half. Um, and the fans are still chanting his name. And in the statement announcing his removal, the Leeds board say that they are currently making plans to create a permanent tribute to Bielsa at Elland Road. Um, look, they were they were smashed apart by a very strange Spurs side, four um, 0 it followed um, a string of results that made it pretty clear. I think that the Leeds players were at their at the end of their tether physically, and however much they loved Bielsa and were invested in his vision, they simply couldn't execute it anymore. Um, I don't know. Maybe we. I think I remember saying I don't think they'll sack Bielsa or they shouldn't sack Bielsa. I I I think last I pod. still be, right. Last pod. I I I think. I still believe that they shouldn't have sacked Bielsa, but in a in a weird way, I don't I don't know I I I oh I totally understand why they did it. Um, I don't think it feels like a sort of betrayal of him. I I don't think Bielsa was particularly happy with the situation, and I believe I mentioned that in last pod. I I definitely said he'll he'll go at the end of the season. Um, we know that this is a man who is so meticulous and particular about everything that 
you know, he he would have known that it wasn't working and that must feel very strange for someone who puts so much effort into into a club. Um, before I let you just give your thoughts, I just want to end with how transformative Bielsa was for Leeds and, and not just the football club, but the entire community. And I think that's a big reason why, uh, you know, the people of Leeds and, and everyone involved are honoring him so much. Um, there's countless stories that you can, that are just a Google away about, you know, his work during lockdown, uh, ringing, you know, hundreds of Leeds fans um, who are living alone to check in on them and, you know, the donations he, he made and where he lived in Leeds and how he interacted with the community and, and all that stuff, um, as well as being this maverick um, football manager who, who brings so much joy and, and is so bizarre. Um, so yeah, he will be missed for sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, as most teams that aren't Newcastle, I despise mm-hmm. Leeds. Yeah. Um, it, so, makes uh, it makes sense. Yeah, everyone hates yeah. Leeds. Yeah. Um, a sense of jealousy. Um, right. With Bielsa. Um, and, you know, they played the type of football that, you know, Newcastle always aspired to play um, outside of under <laughs> Rafa and Steve Bruce. Um, Hi. If you're listening to this, uh, it is because there was a glitch with Craig, our normally recently reliant robot third co-host of the Peaked Too Early podcast. However, uh, he had a little accident and lost the final 30 minutes of this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, What you missed is we give our thoughts on the Jesse Marsh appointment um, and what we thought Leeds' uh, chances of survival were for the rest of the season. We then talked about uh, the sudden announcement of sale of Chelsea Football Club by Abramovich, um, and we talked about what does selling one of the top football teams in the world look like, um, where can Chelsea go, what can new owners do, what are the intentions of new possible owners, uh, what are the intentions behind selling the club, and the statements, um, and the actions by Roman Abramovich, Um, and then I asked Oscar a few questions. Um, The first was uh, about where was former Arsenal uh, winger Rio Miyaichi, uh, Miyaichi, um, and Oscar correctly guessed he was at Yokohama Marinos, um, Yokohama F Marinos. Um, I asked him if he thought Kepa's performance in the Carabao Cup final was worse than Loris Karius in the Champions League final um, without considering the stage, and he said Loris Karius's performance was still worse since he played the full 90. I then asked him what his uh, what he thought transfermarkt valued Keppa at, and he guessed fifteen million. And I the correct answer was eleven, um, so I gave him a point for that. Um, I asked him who had more appearances for Chelsea in the Premier League, Keppa or Edward Mendy, uh, and he correctly guessed that Keppa had more. Keppa has eighty, and Edward Mendy has fifty-two. Then I asked him, uh, as my final question, what's next for Kepa's career? We kind of both agreed, uh, since he's on pretty ridiculous wages, being the seventh highest earner at Chelsea, um, he's probably going to run out his contract um, and then leave, go to some um, bottom of mid-table of La Liga, um, and you know spend the rest of his career there, and then I would uh, ask Oscar about him in eight years' time in season 10 of the Peak to Two Early podcast. Thank you for listening to my uh, sudden recap of the lost audio. Oscar and I are going to meet in about 24 hours uh, and try to pick off, but uh, pick up where we left off, but there is no guarantee it will be as natural 
and effortless as it normally is. Um, so sorry for any awkwardness. Um, back to your regularly scheduled podcasting in three, two, one. Welcome back to the Peaked Too Early podcast. This is part two of episode 19. Uh, I'm very sorry for any awkwardness that this may have caused, but um, Craig, who for so long has been so good to us, yeah. uh, decided it was time for him to start acting up again. He's in his teenage years now. so He is, yeah. yeah. Um, Oscar, we left off. Uh, you were... Uh, waxing poetic about how brilliant the culture and the man that Bielsa was. Um, mm. And uh, rotating to the complete 180 uh, in terms of play style and managerial style. Um, you want to give me some quick thoughts about his replacement, Jesse Marsh? Yeah. All right. So Jesse Marsh, the, the biggest things I have to say about this is I'll touch on tactically how it's a major pivot from the pressing style that we've seen underneath Bielsa, which is a a man-marking pressing style, a one-to-one pressing style, um, which, as we've seen over the past few years, when it works, is scintillating. When it does not work, is absolutely devastating. Jesse Marsh favors a zonal marking s- style. He's all about um, defending spaces uh, and... Uh, like that coordinated um, team press. I mean, there's no other way to say it onto zonal areas in the pitch. Um, And then the other thing I want to say about Jesse Marsh is just, I guess the history of American managers in the league slash Americans in general and how they're received in the UK when it comes to football. We know that Jesse Marsh is, very much a, a football man. He loves to talk football. He loves to talk tactics. And historically, English people and I probably the world at large ridicules that in Americans um, and 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 doesn't rejects that in Americans. Um, and I think there are a bunch of reasons why. You know, I mean, Amer- Americans themselves are to blame in their sort of arrogant sports culture and just I, I guess like this the slightly naive way that. Americans approach soccer in general and you know how you we could get into a whole thing about how soccer and football might even be sort of separate sports the way it exists here versus the way it exists in quote-unquote traditional countries like England or Spain or Italy um every country in the world that isn't the US yeah I'm I'm curious to see how he will be received by the English press and how he will react to the English press and then also whether he can uh, implement his style and tactics quick enough to keep leads from the drop. Yeah. Um, first, from a marketing perspective, um, this will get leads, you know, a lot more fans, um, which is one thing. They'll make some money off of shirt sales and whatnot. Um, mm. It's like signing a Japanese winger. Um, and then, yeah, you know, sure. like you have, you have yeah. huge influx of Japanese supporters. Um, mm-hmm. which is cool and I support when it's not an American um, sure I fully agree on like the American culture of soccer is very cringy um, I think like you know American chants at MLS games are just like the most pathetic things um, the I don't know if you've seen the clip of the barbecue chant um, it's it's so awful um i just don't even it's just the most cringe inducing thing and it's kind of shameful um and i mean it's not a different sport but the culture is just so different um and the types of people who you know grow up playing soccer soccer is very expensive in the u.s so um yeah yeah it's very much like an upper upper middle class kind of sport um whereas in many other places it's the working people's game um Mm. But, I mean, we can talk about American culture and its decay uh, in quite some length. Um, But as for Jesse Marsh, um, yeah, he was at one point one of the hottest coaches in Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. He was at Salzburg, and he was managing 
with the rise of Erling Holland. Um, so those two kind of broke onto the scene together in a way, uh, at least in like a global perspective. Um, he then took over at Leipzig and uh, was quite horrible and got sacked after six months um, and has been out of football since, uh, I think, early December. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure what he's been up to then, but I think Leeds are certainly banking on a continuation of that Salzburg form. Uh, and who knows? It's one of these signings as a manager where uh, it's either going to go you know, one of two ways. Um, you're signing a young, hot prospect, and they either uh, you know, flourish at the new opportunity or they can't make the step up and they fail. Um, Unfortunately for Leeds, failing will most certainly mean relegation for them. Um, and uh, But I think it's like a fine signing. I think it's a more optimistic signing for the fan base than signing like, you know, Big Sam or some ancient English manager yeah. to yeah, try to eke out points, um, which I would, you know, the this has happened to Newcastle in the past, and I would rather have, you know, someone who makes me excited to watch football than, you know, a Steve Bruce. Yeah, very much. Big agree. Sam. Sam. Yeah. Um. Any other? I guess my question for you is: Do you think he's good enough to keep leads up? Oh. Um. Yeah, I do think he's good enough to keep leads up. I think that Leeds have invested in the squad fairly well over the past couple of years as well. So I know that people have been saying a lot that, you know, that, that Leeds is a, a championship side with championship players. And I think such is the case for many of the core squad, but in in the summer of 2021 and then also signings they made in in January 2021 and and maybe summer 2020 you know the likes of Rafinha and Rodrigo and um Dan James like these aren't championship players um these are you know mid mid table prem players and and in the case of Rafinha probably more um you know so i think they have a good spine going that can certainly compete in the premier league and and i think injuries have killed them this season and um I kind of hope they stay up. I don't know. I I I found I thought it was a real shame when Sheffield United, for example, went down last season, um, without a trace. I I like these teams to stay in the Premier League for for more than one year. Um, I think they they deserve it based on the football that they've played. Um, so yeah, in these case, I hope they stay up. I think they probably will. Um, I think Brentford are worse than them, and Norwich are worse than them, and Burnley are. Maybe I don't know. I'm not gonna get get into another prediction thing quite yet. But Leeds, <laughs> hope they stay up. Um, what, just really quickly before we move on, um, how would you compare both the quality of the squad and their chances of survival against a side like Everton? Um. So I think that these are both teams that have had a horrifying injury record this season and yet it, they're two teams that I think personnel wise are genuinely evenly matched and even Leeds might edge it with talent frankly if you just think if you I don't know just google the squads right now and, and look at them side by side um, the only thing I think Everton have going for them right now is literally that they they're an established Premier League club and haven't been relegated in god knows how long and that's it really they're both essentially equally poor form um, and have, well, no, Frank Lampard is more inexperienced than Jesse Marsh, but sort of, I guess, equally, un oh, it's harsh to say that they're unproven uh, in the Premier League, especially, obviously, Lampard. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't want to ramble here. Um, but I, I think that these are both teams that I don't see going down i think these are both teams that will survive um by the skin of their teeth 
17th, 16th. Fair. Um, yeah, I kind of agree. Um, although I'd love to see Everton go down. Both of them going uh, down would be sensational, wouldn't it, frankly? Everton going down would just be great. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, final question. If they yeah. both go down, you know, obviously Burnley would be one of the favorites to then not go down, but would you say Norwich or Watford would be the other team to escape? Um, I think it's a, it's a real toss-up between those two teams, frankly. I think hiring Roy Hodgson, like we've said, in the last pod or whenever it was is a a shrewd defensive move because uh, on paper and in practice this is a guy who can um, stop a team leaking goals and and then like I said last week they they have these maverick players like Emmanuel Dennis that can single-handedly sort of win a game for you Um, and Norwich have objectively improved under Dean Smith Um, and again like I said I can't remember, either yesterday or last week, have had a very, very tough run of fixtures and have a kind of run of fixtures over the next month or two. Um, so if if we're talking about teams that can escape from that bottom three, um, I, I believe all, all three of those are fairly evenly matched at this point. Um, Burnley have the edge because they still have games in hand. But uh, form-wise and personnel-wise, uh, I, I, I think either one of them is as likely as the other to survive if they're going to survive. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, the other topic that got cut from our recording yesterday was the uh, somewhat shock news that Chelsea Football Club would be put up for sale by uh, Roman Abramovich. Uh, Oscar, mm. you want to give me your... Your first thoughts when you saw the news, were you shocked or um, are you the one person who saw this coming? No, God, no. I'm not saying I was the one person who saw this coming or anything like that. I, shocked? I don't know if I was shocked, Blake. Like, uh, we, we've seen the, you know, I mean, I, this war has been ongoing for, what, a week? Um, and so the shock of that happening is still with me. Uh, but we're seeing the expulsion of uh, Russian businessmen and oligarchs from England and the disintegration of, you know, whatever they call it, London grad or, or whatever. And and Abramovich is the, or has been the face of that for 20 years. Um, this is a a seismic moment in the history of Chelsea Football Club and likely in the history of English football because of because of what Abramovich has done to the Premier League and to the profile of English football um, since he arrived in, what was it, 2003. Um, yeah, I, I think that... The, I'll repeat what I said yesterday in the lost recording about Abramovich because my overwhelming feelings are that this is a a man who was incredibly self-aware. From day one, he understood the, um, I think the phrase I used yesterday was, was the power of, or the seductive power of wealth, and then the strategic use of silence. Um, this is a guy that understood London business culture and understood what money could do for him and also understood when to stay quiet and how to stay quiet in order for people to overlook uh, his history and any ties he had with the Kremlin or or shadier dealings in in other countries. Um, He was a sports washer and and cultivated an image of of a man invested in football culture rather than um the money and prestige that football can give you and and that's i think probably largely because he was at the forefront of creating that culture of money and prestige um for football we've seen the reaction from chelsea fans and and many football fans across the country and across the world being extremely 
sympathetic toward um, Abramovich. He put out this statement where he said, amongst other things, like, uh, I will be sending the football club in the best interests of, of Chelsea. Um, none of my uh, none of the loans will have to be repaid. I'll donate the proceedings of the sale to uh, victims of the war um, in Ukraine. Um, just a very like a masterclass in 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 you know in in PR. Um, very vague, and yet it sounds good. And this is something that Abramovich has been very adept at for the past twenty years. And yet Abramovich is a man lest we forget that cannot be reached. He does not give interviews, especially with English media. He he does not answer questions. His team doesn't answer questions. The only person involved in Chelsea right now who's answering questions is Thomas Tuchel. Like, Thomas Tuchel is the only person who's who's up for questioning and is answering questions. Nobody else is. Not Abramovich, not that American lawyer he works with, none of the board. Um, he's elusive and and has cultivated a a sense of of mystery that people have attached themselves to, and I, I don't know what his legacy will be. Uh, his legacy is is undoubtedly uh, as someone who has changed the face of English football, and yet for the better or for the worse, that's the the enduring question that people are debating, and and one that I I know firmly where I <laughs> which side I fall on. Yeah, um, funny that you brought up uh, Thomas Tuchel uh, being the only one who's answering questions because in his uh, pre-match mm. conference yesterday, he was like, please stop I asking me questions. questions. I, yeah. I can't stand it anymore. Just stop. Um, yeah, I think uh, in terms of legacy for both Chelsea and the Premier League and English football. Um, undoubtedly, one of the most influential, um, arguably the most influential in all three. I can't think of someone who so drastically changed such a broad idea. Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. City Football Group yeah. did it again, right? Sheikh Mansour did it again. Um, I guess, but they but just Abramovich matched it. Did so. what? Yeah. yeah, Abramovich did. Yeah, um, just to a high level. Um, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and I don't know. I think you know he's forever going to be seen in the eyes of Chelsea supporters as like yeah. a demigod. Um, yeah, just 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 look on Twitter. I mean, it's yeah, pretty rough. It is. Yeah. Um the the statement put out by Abramovich, um you talked about how it's like PR gold. Um the thing that a lot of people are latching onto, it's one of those things where Chelsea fans are latching onto it and being like this is phenomenal, like what a selfless guy this is, and other people are like, "Oh, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. The no loan repayment required. Um, you know, it's either he sells for $1.5 billion and gets the $1.5 billion loan back, which equals $3 billion, or he sells for $3 billion. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, you talked about the proceeds going to the victims of war in Ukraine, which is just an interesting wording. Um, yeah. And against Putin's wishes, likely. Um, but, um, you know, it's just kind of the end of a era. Um, you know, it's like Bielsa's chapter is closing. Um, and that chapter is, you know, six or seven pages. Uh, and then the next chapter in the book in English football is, uh, you know, 85 page, uh, yeah rant on what Abramovich has done for the club. Um, but yeah, uh, not much else to say. Um, but uh, I think kind of the m more interesting part um, is what happens next for Chelsea. Um, not only in terms of who is buying this club, um, which 
uh, it seems some Americans have pretty heavy hands, including uh, Todd Bailey. Or he's German, so I'm assuming it's Bailey. Um, well, he's an American whose grandparents were German uh, from Bethesda, Maryland, which is you know a good 40 minutes down the road from me. Um, and just a truly hallowed place. Um, I hate Bethesda. Um, hmm. yeah. But um, so this consortium of Americans who are looking at buying Chelsea um, and, uh, you know, we talked about this yesterday, but, uh, you know, for the sake of a lost recording, we have to rehash these conversations. Um, just buying such an established and, you know, a top three expensive squad in the world, you know, what's the margin of improvement um, that Chelsea can go to? Like, how much more can they improve? Um, Mm. And so, like, in terms of footballing future, Chelsea seems to be at their ceiling, um, which is as high as you can get, essentially. And in terms of profitability which is most likely what americans are looking to get out of this deal uh like how do you make profit on you know a three billion Mm. pound purchase outside of turning them into a man city um which i feel like it's easier to do what man city did um and make a huge gap at once once you've already you know chelsea's so heavily invested in how do you then take that next jump versus kind of having a clean slate you can work from and making the jump like Man City did. Um, So, I mean, my answer for what I think the future looks like is I don't, you know, you don't really know how they can improve. Um, Right. And these Americans who are getting their fingers wet in this, you know, I think they're going to have to be, they're either really naive uh, and think, which, you know, a lot of foreign investors tend to be, or they are really smart, which is a possibility, um, or it's just a, you know, glitzy um, pet project um, that I know both of these, the, the two people whose names have been mentioned Todd Bailey and Hans uh, Hans Weiss um, are both heavily invested in other sports already. So um, whether this is like a Fenway Sports Group kind of yeah. approach, where it's you know trying to get top teams and top leagues all around the world, um, we don't know, but. Oscar, what do you think the future slash what the new owners will potentially be trying to get out of this sale is? Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't have much to add to what you said. I agree. I think uh, for Chelsea under Abramovich, it was about uh, recycling that ceiling of success in periods, right? So you had the, the two Marino periods and you had the Ancelotti period and you had um the Conte period um and a few in between Matteo was in the winning stuff that's the best they can hope for I mentioned yesterday that self-sustaining system that they have which you know that that sort of loan farm system which is a hallmark of the the ruthlessness of the Abramovich era with regards to, to players and that in recent years under Marina um Granovskaya I think has probably transformed into something a bit more modern um and at least on the surface, you know, a bit more appropriate where they, they're not setting up players for failure necessarily. They're just dubiously buying up young talent and then sort of doing what, what they want with them, tracking them and selling them up for large profits. Um, frankly, if Chelsea want to remain successful, they have to keep a similar model to that. I think it kind of defines them. Um, whether that will be possible in, under new ownership, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, just um, really quickly touching on the loan farming 
tactic that Chelsea has sort of perfected. Um, do you know off the top of your head what the rule change that is either coming about or already came about is? No um, that's clue. sort of supposed to limit that. I don't know if it ended up going through and just was ineffective or if it's still being debated. Uh, but I thought there was some rule trying to end the number of players you can have out on loan. Hmm. Um, but I, I don't think it would be too hard to get around that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, Chelsea are a well-oiled machine. Um, and, you know, they... In terms of what needs to be done, you mentioned yesterday, um, Stanford Bridge uh, could potentially get a renovation. But outside of that, they have you know a top class training facility. They have um, you know partner clubs all around the world, and you know some of the best staff and dev- well, some of the most expensive players. Um, and uh, yeah, I I don't know what's next for Chelsea, um, but uh, we talked yesterday about how if they get it wrong, if the new owners you know aren't able to continue what happened under the Roman Abramovich era. Um, There's no reason Chelsea couldn't collapse. You know, no football team is, you know, big enough. You know, there were times where nobody could have predicted, you know, Pompey collapsing or uh, Ipswich or, um, you know, Leeds, which, you know, took them, what, 20 years to get back to the Premier League. Um, And, you know, the... Bigger a side is, if it falls, you know, the harder it's going to be to get back. Um, so with that being said, Oscar, do you have any final thoughts on Chelsea? I do not. Uh, well, then that has been uh, part two or part three, um, depending if you count my one-minute interlude. Um of episode 19 of uh season two of the peak too early podcast please uh tweet us review us email us um and uh comment us um and with this nice weather i hope all of you are able to get out on the football pitch and kick around a ball um and you know relive some old times that we've been sorely missing in this awful weather indeed Thank you, everyone. I'm standing.